Grace, mercy, and peace are yours from God the Father and from the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The word of God, which we will consider today, is our gospel lesson. It's recorded in Matthew's gospel, chapter 9. There we read verses 1 through 8 as follows in Jesus' name. Jesus got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Their people brought to him a man who was paralyzed, lying on a stretcher. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Then some of the experts in the law said among themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Since Jesus knew their thoughts, he said, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your stretcher and go home. The man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and glorified God who had given such authority to man. These are the words. Heavenly Father, sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. In the name of Jesus Christ, dear fellow redeemed, of all the things that you have, all the things that you use and Enjoy. Which one do you value most of all? That may be a difficult question for a lot of us Americans to answer because we've been so richly blessed by God with an abundance of material things. We have so much and then to choose just one item which is most of all valued may require a lot of careful thought. The answer to that question, what's your, what do you value most, may vary according to our stage in life. When I was 12, I would have listed my 10-speed Huffy as the thing that I valued most of all. And then when I got to be 16, it was probably my driver's license. And then maybe a little later, my stereo. In our text today, though, Jesus reminds us of that which we should prize above all the other things we value, namely the forgiveness of all of our sins. And that's really the answer to the question we'll consider now as our theme today. What do you value most of all? In order to rightly value our most precious possession, we must first remember and never forget our biggest problem our greatest misfortune, our deepest need. You and I don't have to guess about the problem the man brought to Jesus that day in Capernaum faced. He had no movement in his legs, perhaps no movement in his torso. He was paralyzed, and he depended upon his friends for whatever mobility he had. Matthew begins, Jesus got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Their people brought to him a man who was paralyzed, lying on a stretcher. 
Jesus and the disciples had been on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and when they returned by boat to Capernaum, the city that had become their temporary home, they were met by a large and enthusiastic crowd. And among the people in the crowd were this paralyzed man and his friends. They'd been waiting for Jesus. They had maybe seen him before, Perhaps they had at least heard about him before. And Jesus, who's able to read human hearts, gazed at the paralyzed man and his friends, and he saw their faith, that they were believers. Now they were part of this excited group there to greet him. And all of them probably had a confident expectation of what would now happen. For Jesus had healed other disabled people in their community, and some of them have been, may have been present on those occasions when Jesus hurled demons howling from the bodies of the possessed. They knew Jesus never turned away from the needy, so they must have been confident that he would now help the paralyzed man who was intentionally placed probably right in front of him. Jesus, though, saw before him another need, a problem even greater than the most obvious, the man's paralysis. While other people in the crowd may have overlooked this, Jesus saw that it was sin that lay at the core of this man's problems. It was one thing for him to be held down long years on a mat, but another to be held down by his sin and guilt before God, facing the prospect one day of entering eternal suffering. And so ourselves, we are mistaken if we assume that the problems that any of us face in the course of our daily lives really represent the greatest misfortune that we'll ever have to encounter. The illnesses and the discouragements, the fears, the disappointments which come to any and every one of us are finally only the byproducts of our greatest problem, that is our sin before God. Sin has ruined us. It has torn us from a good relationship with the one who created us. Human beings were made originally to live happy and sinless lives in the paradise that God has created. But when through Adam and Eve, sin, by the devil's temptation, entered into the picture, that perfect relationship with God came to a sudden screeching end. As a consequence of their disobedience, you and I now live oftentimes troubled and disordered lives here on planet Earth, where such things as blizzards and tornadoes and floods occur on the land, where in our own lives we face things such as cancer and the fear of war raging in different places in the world. This problem is universal, and no one is exempted from facing the consequences of sin. So the psalmist said, everyone has turned away. They have together become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. King Solomon asked, who can say, I have kept my heart pure. I'm clean and without sin. 
The sinful nature latches onto all of us, and it's evident in our refusal to do good to others. It's seen in our selfishness, in our apathy toward the church and its mission. This problem that Jesus identified in the paralyzed man is the cause of every problem, personal problem, social problem that we encounter in this life. And then worse, at death, it is the reason that a person is cast into hell. Before we can appreciate our most valued, precious possession, we must then recognize and first learn to hate and to dread our worst problem, our sin. Now Matthew continues. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. In answer to this greatest problem, Jesus put the man in possession of the most precious gift that he could give, that is, the forgiveness of the man's sins. That truth is shown, I think, also in the life of famous King David, who we know from the Old Testament as an especially gifted person. David was a brave and successful warrior, a world-class poet and musician, a man with enormous power and wealth. But when David took an inventory of his life and what he had, he thought about the greatest blessing he'd been given. He said, blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. You know, if that paralyzed man had not been healed that day when he was brought to Jesus, and if he had to lie upon his mat for the rest of his days on earth, he still would have been greatly blessed, believing the words that Jesus spoke to him. Your sins are forgiven. We read on, Then some of the experts in the law said among themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. How could this man, Jesus, hand out such a precious gift? They concluded that he must be speaking evil and falsehood since only God has that authority to forgive a person's sins. Why do you think evil in your hearts, Jesus asked them, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, get up and walk? And then to show them that he had the power to do both marvelous things, he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take up your stretcher, and go home. And then Matthew tells us the man got up and went home. The miracle of Jesus, of healing, which our Lord performed, was a strong proof and verification of what before this, he had announced to the legal experts when he said that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. What does that title Jesus use sometimes, referring to himself, the Son of Man? What does that mean? With those words, Jesus teaches us that he who is the everlasting God, who existed prior to the beginning of time, became a man, by assuming to himself human flesh. 
That title is a description of the mystery of who he is, that Jesus is both God and man fully, 100% in one person. He had to be fully human in order to fulfill the law of God for other humans. He had to be true man in order to suffer, in order to feel the terrible loneliness of being abandoned by his heavenly Father as he died on the cross as the very worst of all sinners, in order to make the blood sacrifice that has washed away our sins, in order that he could be the true substitute in pain and sadness and even death on a cross for you and me. St. Paul said, by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, even to death, many will be made righteous. And yet at the same time, the, the Bible teaches us to know Jesus as being truly divine, true God. Why is it necessary that he be not only true man, but also God. He must be God so that what he did, what he fulfilled for us, what he suffered for us, would be the sufficient ransom paid in full for every one of our sins. Even if you and I could muster up the kind of love and courage it would take to have ourselves hung on a cross there to bleed and to suffocate finally for the sins of others, that wouldn't be enough, for we're only human. But the one who took that awful beating and died that awful death is not only true man, he is God himself, so that the sacrifice redeeming us from sin and death and hell would be enough. And we should be confident and sure of that. Our greatest problem was our sin and its consequences. Our greatest, most valued possession must be the forgiveness of our sins earned for each of us by the life and the death of the God-man, Jesus Christ, through whom our personal rebellious thoughts, words, and deeds have blown away like a cloud on a windy day. Matthew concludes this account writing, When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and glorified God who had given such authority to men. It would be a terrible thing to learn of such a gift as God's forgiveness, to know that somewhere it exists, but not know how we might receive it, how might we have it so that we possess it and receive its comfort and joy and peace. Well, we get it, and it becomes our own simply by believing. That is through faith. God not only provides it, but he also sees to it that we're brought to possess it, for he delivers it to us in his word, which we hear, and in holy baptism, which washed us clean before God and made us his children. Jesus gives it also to us in the sacrament of holy communion, where he comes to us individually and feeds us with the same body and blood that was offered up on the cross to pay for our sins. Through these things, the Holy Spirit, we're taught, is present and working in our hearts. So when in our worship services together, we 
stand up and confess our sins to God, the pastor has the privilege of forgiving us by God's own command and in his stead. So we are to believe this word of forgiveness which we are hearing as being as valid as though Jesus himself were standing right in front of us, looking us in the eye, speaking to us. We can say and believe that because when Jesus sent out his disciples to preach the gospel, he said, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. He told them, he who listens to you listens to me, but he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. He declared, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What a precious gift this is, more valuable than anything else that we might value. We can hear from one another and believe that our biggest problem has been solved, that our sins are forgiven. May we appreciate this gift above all others. Take heart, your sins are forgiven you. Amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and shall be forevermore. Amen.